I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Common Sense, an anonymous podcast. Today's conversation is with Bowtied Octopod and Bowtied Wine Guy, two wine and food experts. We discuss the process of making wine, the pairings you need to try, and in the last 10 minutes, they each give their top 10 favorite affordable wines. I won't blame you if you skip ahead. Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoy the conversation, please like and subscribe. You can find my guest information in the description box below. Now, let's get into it. Hey guys, we've got Wine Guy and Octopod once more on the podcast today. Thank you guys so much for coming on. And we're talking about wine, which I have so much experience in as we were just discussing. So I think it'd be helpful to start with like the different types of wine, the different features of wine, like the age, the region where the grapes come from, what makes a good wine. And then we can move more into like meal planning and here's the course you want to make. How do you pick the right wine for that? So we can start talking about the holidays and maybe preparing some really fancy and elite wine pairings for the holidays. So starting with wine, and I'm going to ask this question, and I know it's going to come across as a little bit rudimentary, but what's the difference between red and white? Is it red grapes versus green grapes? Yes, it is. Uh, I mean... Uh, sort of, but basically different grapes have different characteristics and those different characteristics of the grape kind of give you your wine. Um, so yeah, at, at a very, very high level, um, it is, yeah, red wine is the red grapes and white wine tends to be like your greener, your white grapes. And then they have different characteristics as you get into it more you know like your reds have these things called tannin um where the tannin is that real grippy thing that like kind of makes you suck your tongue when you drink it like right and then Mm -hmm. on the other end your whites tend to be more acidic and light so another thing that if you're looking at just color specifically would be the uh the skin of the grapes themselves um where you can actually have like a champagne that's made from pinot noir but it's not red uh Mm. because a lot of the color is coming from the skins and so just you know for broad example a uh, 100% pinot noir champagne that's clear that looks just like a regular champagne it's juice that hasn't sat in contact with the skins and therefore it doesn't um uh get that color uh again super generalized but just another way to think of it and that's how you can also get rosé wines which are really popular with certain groups of people it's uh red wine that's pressed but then only left in contact with the skin for a short amount of time so then you get that kind of rosé color Um, okay octo on that point could we just do like the basic process of making wine like how do you go from a grape to a wine i understand it will vary by the type of wine but generally what does that look like uh, wine guy, do you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah. So basically, um, there's multiple steps. Um, the first step to making wine is the growing period. It's got to the grapes grow, and when it's time to pick the wines, it's called the harvest. There's multiple ways to harvest. Some people go hand pick. Some people do machines. It depends where you go. Um, but you harvest the wine. So you harvest the grapes, you actually take them off of the vine. And then from there, you bring them into your, this can go from super small scale production to these like massive companies that have like full blown factories. Um, But after you pick it, you have to destem the grapes. So you got to actually like take the little, um, you know, the little, stalks off um some winemakers will actually leave some of the stalks in and this is where i'm going to give you a general overview but there's so many different nuances and ways of doing this to like add flavor and all this but again so you got your grapes you got to take them off of the stalks 
then you're going to kind of put them in your vat, whatever that is. And this is where you sort of add your yeast. Um, and this is what's going to give it its alcohol, basically. Um, that's your quote unquote fermentation process. Um, this is where Bowtie uh, Octopod, he talked about, you have it in contact with the skins during this process. The longer you leave it in contact with the skins, the more color and maybe tannin and different flavor. So that's going to depend. Do you want to leave it with the skins for a long time, a short time, all that stuff? Um, then you need to press it. So that's where you actually get the juice out of it. And once you've pressed it, now we're going to store it, age it. Um, and this is where you can do it. Uh, you can put it in barrels, which is common. Barrels kind of give it different flavors. There's a ton of different barrels you can use, French oak, American oak. And there's, you know, do you store it in your barrels for one year, two year, five year, 10 year, whatever. Um, or you can put it in steel. And steel will kind of keep the fruity flavors. It's just, a, again, a different way of storing it. Um, it might go through different filtration processes at this point. You know, you can, some filter once, some filter twice. Again, this is all dependent on the winemaker. Um, and then after that, it's time to bottle it. So, you know, it's pretty simple. You pick it, you press the grapes, you put it in a barrel, and then you bottle it and you sell it. And so aging is like one of the main things that I'm aware of is that the older the wine is, the more expensive it is, and the better it's supposed to taste. Do you agree with that statement? Is it like 20% longer in the barrel means 20% better wine? How should I think about that? So aging, there's really, there's sort of two aging processes. First is how long was it aged before you even get it in the bottle? And then how long are you going to age it in the bottle? This is after you purchase it, and now it's on you to age it. And different wines need to be aged for different periods of time, okay? It's going to depend on the type of grape and just the whole process. Now, I will say this. For those of you that are purchasing wine kind of in that $20, $30, $40 range, the majority of those wines are ready to be drank right now. Just open it and drink it, okay? Um, for the most part. The aging kind of comes with the higher-end wines that require a little more complexity to it. That's just a, a side note. The second side note, if you don't have a wine fridge or a cellar and you're storing your wine at room temperature, you can't really age it either. It is going to age significantly faster. So if you're just leaving it on the counter and you think you're going to store it for 10 years, it's not going to happen, okay? So. Well, it'll happen. It's just not going to be a good outcome. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it'll, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, and what he means by that, so what happens is you can actually age a wine for too long, okay? Because what happens is, during the aging process, some of the compounds in the wine kind of settle. They get exposed to oxygen, depending on how it's being stored. And that does different things to the wine. So if you have this big wine that's got these heavy tannins, aging is going to soften those tannins and allow some of the complexity to settle in and come forth. Now, if you age it for too long, it'll get too soft and it'll be what people usually refer to as flabby, where it'll almost have no life to it. It'll have no bang, no backbone. So that aging flabby? process. Yes, flabby. That's actually a common term because it's, it's just a thing. Yeah, it's That's just amazing. like, it's dead. Like, imagine it's just, there. it's like a juice almost. It's just, there's no bang to it, if that makes sense. 
So basically, there is a point, an optimum point for each wine at the age that it should be drink. Yes, so drunk. Drunk. <laughs> so let's say that you're me and you're walking through the grocery store and you're trying to buy a nice bottle of wine. How on earth am I supposed to know what's going to be a good red wine based on the labels alone? Unless you know the producer, okay? Like, you know that label, like, uh, you know, just, I love Alpha Omega wine, okay? It's a great winery. If I see them, I know it's going to be a good wine. If you don't know the producer, you're not going to necessarily know if it's a good wine or not. Okay, especially if you're just on your own. You can't really tell if it's good. Because well, every label is going to advertise itself as a good wine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But some things I like to look for, at least in a label, is, you know, if I'm going in like a big wine store, like a total wine where there's like a hundred different wines and you're like, what the heck am I even going to buy? Um, one of the little kind of hints that I find, and this is not foolproof by any means, um is that the labels that don't explain anything about their wine and they're like you know this wine is great for sitting in the backyard with friends okay versus the wine that tells you <laughs> you know this wine was growing at 47 degrees latitude at 500 uh you know 500 meter altitude um and we do this kind of process go for that wine Okay, that that just is like one of my very, very high level. You don't know anything about wine. You don't know your region, what you're doing. The the labels that are very general and appeal to like your emotions rather than giving you information about the wine, they tend to be not as good. Yeah, I would say um, the first thing you need before you go and, and find a bottle of wine is what do you want? And that's going to taste is so subjective. Um there are styles of wine that I really care for that I have friends who know more about wine than I do that they just don't care care for. And it's it doesn't mean one of us is right and one of us is wrong. It's just our personal tastes uh, differ slightly in certain areas. So, you know, walking into a wine shop or walking into, you know, a, a Costco or wherever you're trying to get wine and going from a blank, what, do, what should I get? Uh, you need to have some sort of expectation. Um, do you like big, big, fruity bombastic reds do you like more um subtle soft uh, uh soft ripe reds do you prefer buttery whites like uh california chardonnay like so if if you have some sort of starting point to what you're looking for taste wise you're gonna have a lot less headache trying to figure out something that there's no set expectation for so um that to me which is not going to be the answer anyone wants to hear is you need to taste a bunch of different wines just to find out the style you even like and there's no right or wrong answers to that but at least if you know what you're what you like and what you think your friends would like um that will cut i would say 70 percent of the headache out of it because at least you know what you're looking for ideally you've tasted a bunch of different types of wines and they don't even have to be expensive but it's just like oh, this wine was really grippy and the sides of my tongue like dried out. Um, I don't like this. Or you're like, I love this because when I'm eating it with steak, the fat in the steak and then the dryness of the wine make everything come together in like harmony. And I, I totally agree that that's what to go in with an expectation. And I think the best way to establish your expectation is to differentiate first between your big and your light wines. So understanding that if you get a cab, it's going to be big and bold and like you're going to get that grippiness on the tongue versus a Pinot Noir, which is going to be very light and fruity. Okay, so establish between your big and your light and then kind of just get a feel for regions, because I think that's the best approach if you don't know what you're doing, but you kind of start to learn. Just learn your regions a little bit. Like, just know, okay, I really do like these, like, Napa cabs, or, you know, I like German Riesling, or, you know, a Burgundy, which is a Pinot Noir. 
that's the best thing you can do for yourself is just to kind of learn the high level differences between regions and then you can start to play with what you like and because then where you would go from that point if i can interject is okay i love i i really like this burgundy which is a pinot noir from france well i should try a pinot noir from california and a pinot noir from washington state and then i can decide wow the french pinot noir is a lot more earthy um and the California Pinot Noir has a lot more like ripe red fruit. I like the red fruity one. So I'm going to like start looking more there. Uh, so it's kind of like a journey. Okay. So basically taste some wines and then figure out the region dimension as a sub level of the taste of the wine to get really good at it. So my experience thus far has been Franzia, if you're familiar with the <laughs> quality brand. And then also the Trader Joe's where you can buy your own six pack of like different things in little wine bottles. So I do have a very elevated palate, but I am trying to work on it. So your recommendation for me is to go to Costco and buy like eight different bottles of wine is what it sounds like. Actually, I what what I think would be even better because it's that's a that's a bold move to try to take on eight bottles of wine at once (laughs) (laughs) and and you're not going to have the benefit because what what the problem is like let's say you buy eight bottles of wine you're not going to drink them all or you're going to open them all take a sip from each and now you just wasted eight bottles of wine (laughs) right but the best way to do it is to try them back to back um when you take a sip of a pinot and then take a sip of a cab right after the difference is going to be right it's so obvious but if you have a pinot on saturday and then you wait a whole week and have your cab it's not going to be as obvious so rather than buying the full bottles of wine find a local wine bar like most you know if you're anywhere near any reasonable city or you'll have some kind of wine tasting bar and, and do do like a flight that's the best way I think to do it is to find a place that offers tastings where you can do them all back to back. And then the differences will be more obvious. And preferably not some like winery that's just only serving their wines. Good call. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> um, the, the other thing you can do, and I, I would say that uh, wine guys recommendation there hundred percent or go find a restaurant that has a good happy hour. Mm. Uh, and try a few like by the glass selections off their list. Um, and you can even tell the server, look, I'm trying to learn about wine. I want to try these two wines. Can you serve them to me at the same time so I can compare? Like, I, I guarantee, like, of course, they'll they'll probably do that. I mean, they'll give I you a see. taste. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing you can do is there are some good books out there. Uh, the one that has imprinted on me is because it's the first one I found just by luck. Uh, I think it was called Great Wine Made Simple or something. It's by this master sommelier uh, named Andrea Immer. And she goes through the the big six grapes. And then she has selections for you to try with tasting notes. So you can actually go out to the store, buy those wines, bring them home, taste them, and compare your notes to hers. And by going through the big six, uh, you know, like Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, things from Merlot, Cabernet, that's one way to do it at home. And also if you're wanting some education, like the book itself is is solid. That's a cute like Christmas gift idea too. Yes, Dude, agreed. Cool. Mm-hmm. So that's cute. I can do that. And then are there certain scenarios where like red wine is just obviously the right choice with certain foods and white wine is not the right choice or it is for certain things like white wine and fish, red wine and steak. I, I know that much, but like, is there, you have to do Cabernet. I saw a wine guy that you're a hater of Merlot. Like, <laughs> what is the, t- I just give me some understanding. Let me clarify the Merlot thing first. Um, <laughs> so that's actually from a movie. Oh. Um, the, 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 the line is from a movie. So before this movie, this line, this movie came out, um, Merlot was one of the most commercially sold wines in America. Okay. And, you know, it was a big deal. It was like this big, like Merlot, whatever. Everyone liked Merlot. And that was all the cheap wine that you could find in all the restaurants. And then this movie comes out. It's called Sideways. And, the, you know, these guys are on this wine tasting trip. And the guy's complaining. And he, he says the line, like, if anyone orders Merlot, I'm not drinking any Merlot, whatever. 
And after that line, Merlot sales plummeted in America and Pinot Noir became the most sold wine. So it was like this big iconic thing. That's why it's my, I, I like Merlot. That was just a cultural thing, kind of like a little thing. If anybody really knew about it, they would laugh and if they saw that in my profile. Yeah, every girl I know likes Pinot Noir and just every white wine, like buttery Chardonnay and mm -hmm. Rosé. That's what I would say for the girl demographic. I actually find that to be true, too. And I think it's just because they're most Pinots, unless you're doing Burgundy, are, are fruitier and they're mm -hmm. easy to easy to drink. There's not a lot you know, bodied, really yeah. approachable. Well, I was just going to say, as far as the food pairings I, or, you know, this wine goes with that wine. I would say instead of thinking of the color of the wine, you should think about the structure of the wine, given the acid, sugar content, or the tannin. And this is where it gets really interesting. So I had one of the best food pairings of my life, eating a piece of fatty brisket with a German Spätlese Riesling. And the wow. acid in the Riesling cut through the fat in the brisket, the smokiness of the brisket with the fruit that was like, peach notes off the top of the aromatics on the Riesling. It was served with like a corn grits that were enriched with butter. The biggest part of this successful pairing was the acid in that Riesling that had just a hint of sugar because it was a Spätlese, which just means it's a, uh, it has a higher residual sugar uh, than like a Cabernet, um, which we can talk German wines later if you want, which I'm a huge fan of. But no one in, no one to that point had I ever seen say, I'm drinking a white wine with fatty brisket, and it was one of the most delicious. It was it was the pairing of the day uh, in the group of people that I was uh, enjoying the meal with. Counterpoint, uh, if you're talking about sauces, uh, there is a sauce called Beurre Rouge, which is most people have heard of Beurre Blanc, which is a white wine butter sauce. Uh, there's a variation of that called uh, Beurre Rouge, which is a red wine butter sauce. And Eric Repair uh, is a really famous chef at La Bernadette. Uh, he actually kind of made this pairing. He used to serve a, a monk fish, which is a white fish with a bear rouge. And that was actually paired with, I think it was a Pinot Noir or a, um, or Beaujolais or something. And so that's red wine with white fish, but it's because the sauce had this red wine. So there was some tannin um, and the, the butter like balanced that. And so, uh, I think it would have been harder to try and pair a white wine with that, given the fact that the sauce had red wine in it. Yeah, that's funny because it's funny you mentioned that uh, pairing because one of the best pairings I ever had, I had it about two or three years ago, was sous vide lamb with a Napa Chardonnay. And it was just nice. it's like, again, one of those things where like if you have lamb, you're going like these bigger reds and Bordeaux, but it just worked. Um and we were all like blown away. We we're like, how the heck is this even possible? So I, I, I like I like his point about don't think so much about the color of the wine, more so the structure of the wine, the acid, the body, the things like that. And the structure will be the same for the any type of that wine. So if I have a Riesling, that no. structure, it, so it depends on the region of the Riesling. So... Riesling can be either really dry, have a little bit of residual sugar, or be uh, fermented to the point where it has a lot of residual sugar and it's like a dessert wine. So understanding the German labeling on the Riesling is, is important to know if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, most people think of all Rieslings as sweet, and that's just not true. Um, and there's this whole world of super dry, petrally, um, earthy, like steely fruity Rieslings that um, have literally no residual sugar at all. Um, but yeah, th there's a, a classification system on grading the level of sweetness. Um, the short answer is it's it's Cabernet, uh, Spätlese and Auslese, and then beer and Auslese, which would be like the sweetest like dessert wine. That's when you're getting into like ice wine territory. So again, me, mediocre rudimentary wine connoisseur, like I want to make Thanksgiving dinner. How do I pick the best wine to go with that? So th Thanksgiving is kind of fun. These like big holiday um, wine pairings are always fun in a way because what I find is that most of these big holiday parties, um, 
are comprised of like, you know, I'm bringing this and, Mm -hmm. you know, she's bringing this dish. And, you know, even if it's not like this big 20 person party, it's kind of just a bunch of dishes thrown together. So unless you have someone like Octopod, who's designing this meal, at least what I find is that most holiday parties, the overall spread lacks cohesiveness, okay? Where it's like, this side dish is not necessarily going with this side. It's just a bunch of things thrown together, which is fine, right? We all have a great time. It's a good meal. But it kind of makes us approach our holiday wine pairing a little more generally because the entire course doesn't have that like binding trait that we can necessarily link the wine to. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I like to do and the way I like to approach the holiday wine pairing, because for, you know, all my family parties like I always bring the wine and whatever but I like to bring um much more approachable easy to drink kind of goes with a lot of different dishes that's what I like to do so to start and I I, there's kind of like three main types that I like to bring I always like to start with some kind of bubbles um bubbles will go great with many of your appetizers regardless of what you're doing whether you're doing like the charcuterie or whatever the little vegetables and salads all that kind of stuff um start with some kind of bubbles um it doesn't need to be champagne i actually like to do like a brute rosé um just because you know like you mentioned before all the girls love it but everybody does it's easy to drink it's quote unquote again approachable it pairs with so many different things. So I really like a sparkling rosé to start. And then I like to bring some kind of white, some kind of red, just because people get caught, you know, they want their white, they want their red. Okay, fine. Let's make sure everyone's happy. And so I like to go for generally, especially like if you're doing like turkey, if you're doing like a prime rib, this goes out the window. But if you're doing your standard Thanksgiving vegetables and turkey this is what we're doing i like to go with a riesling and i like to go with a pinot noir um and that could be burgundy but i would probably go more towards california again just because of the fruitiness and more approachability and the reason i like riesling and the pinot noir is because they have a ton of versatility um so regardless of what your side dish is whether your family does you know, sweet potatoes or macaroni and cheese. I, I don't know, whatever you do. Riesling is safe. And so is Pinot Noir. You have your white, you have your red. They pair with a lot of different things at the table and you can drink them on their own. They don't necessarily need food. If you're just kind of sitting around and the food's not out and you want to pour yourself a glass of red wine, that Pinot Noir is going to be very easy to drink on its own. So again, just to sum it up, I like the Brut Rosé. I like Riesling and I like Pinot Noir. And that's my general approach to most people's holiday parties. Hmm. Octo, would you do something similar? That's exactly what I would do. I love, I, I think bubbles, like Willy Wonka said it best, bubbles, bubbles everywhere. Um, they're the great equalizer. You can have, you can literally have bubbles with fried chicken and caviar, or you can have it with a roast turkey. You can have it with fish. You can have it uh bubbles are are so versatile and and a lot of it is the bubbles themselves they they scrub and they refresh your palate um and so that's like a secret hack if you if you're stuck on a pairing and don't know like what to do at all bring a bottle of bubbles and you're 99 is it's gonna at least work if not be great riesling i would definitely definitely do um especially if you've got more curious and adventurous crowd but I've, I've won many people over with Riesling and then Pinot Noir slam dunk with roast turkey. And then, you know, like your sweet potato sides. And um, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing about that recommendation for Thanksgiving. Okay. Fascinating. I have one question on the bubbles. So it can get really expensive with champagne. Like where do you think the trade-off is or the optimal price point for champagne? If you're bringing champagne to someone's house, are you shelling out on a really nice bottle or is there some decent bottles at like the 50 60 range 
there's decent bottles in the 30 to 40 range if you don't if you're not hung up on champagne itself um wine guy and i did a sub stack was it last year yeah i think yeah. it was last year there's a brute rosé from spain well i can see the label and the name's escaping me and it's like 35 dollars. and this brute rosé like it drinks at like a 70 to 80 dollar level like in my opinion like it's a family-run winery that's been around for like 100 years and they make this badass brute rosé that i literally recommend to anyone uh that you can probably you probably find it but i i actually agree with him too i wouldn't get especially for something like I, I wouldn't get hung up on it needing to be champagne you don't you don't need it um and there's actually I, sometimes you can even find a little more versatility in like the sparkling rosés or like even a prosecco um i don't usually go prosecco but um you know like I, with that rosé at least you I, I sometimes you can find like i said a little more versatility and it might be even a little easier for people to drink low part that's the low part that's the winery yep. in spain yep. <laughs> there it is nice. so is that kind of rosé going to be in the grocery store somewhere or is that uh you got to order it online type of thing no i've i've seen i've seen sparkling rosés in grocery stores um they're not that hard to find um i mean I, I like the a... really good one from spain well, like, no, that's not going to be in a grocery store. Okay, that's what I. You, I think you can. Uh, so I, if you Google that wine, I guarantee you there's a wine store, like a big box wine store in your area that would probably carry it. Maybe not at a grocery store. Hard to find, but high quality wines from like Napa, Napa Chardonnay, what all those things that you guys were talking about. Those big box wine stores are the places where you'll find them rather than the grocery store. The really good ones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the because gro grocery stores, you have to remember that grocery stores are, it can only carry so many wines and they're going to go for the Yellow very tail. high, what's that? Yellow, Yellow yeah, tail. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. Because they can get it, they can get it at a discount. They can buy it in these massive quantities, they're not going to be able to go to some single producer in Napa and, you know, uh, order a million cases. It, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. So they're only going to be able to get their wines from the people who can fill their inventory. So if you look at, you know, uh, like a shop, right, you know, they're just going to buy from the biggest names because they're the biggest names are the only people capable of filling those orders. Um, Whereas in these wine stores, even a bigger one like Total Wine, um, they have a little more ends with different people who are, you know, they can get different wines. They're going to go out on more of a limb and order these better, less mass produced wines. Agreed. And I think the biggest thing I've learned today is that there's a false dichotomy between red and white. Like I've always just thought, oh, do you like red wine? Do you like white wine? I'm in the mood for white, but it sounds like you guys are saying, release yourself from the bonds of red versus white. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and to to finish the debate once and for all, the only wine acceptable to drink with with sushi is bubbles <laughs> or or sake. Absolutely no red wine. <laughs> no. Yeah, we talk about this. Like, look, taste is subjective. Okay, the, the best there's there's this, a line that the guy who taught me he always said, um, the best wine is the is the wine that you like the most. Okay, mm -hmm. taste is subjective. Red wine and sushi is objectively wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, for those who are listening, could you guys just list off some of your favorite brands or like? Not brands, but wineries or Napa Chardonnay. This one is great, so people can try to find them. Yes, um, I I do want to preface preface this though before I rattle off a few. Um, if you are new to wine and you're kind of just getting into it, don't get too hung up on the producer. And I say that because there's just so many good producers and bottles to find out there. 
And if you're still new and trying to learn what you like, I just don't want to see you get pigeonholed into only drinking, you know, prisoner wine. Don't do that ever. But like, please don't. And it's like a little bit annoying when I see all these like big time wine reviewers and they just keep talking about the same big producers over and over. Oh, Sasaka. Oh, gosh. They're good wines, but like, you don't need to get too caught up into producers to get good wine. That's all I'm going to say. And I will, I'll, uh, if you, I'll go right now and I'll give you some of mine, but I don't know. Oxpa, do you agree with that? No, totally. Um, especially like what you'll see on Twitter and stuff is people like flexing a bottle and uh, it, they're flexing the label. And many times it's like, like, I'm sorry, like if you're flexing uh, Silver Oak, like, I'm sorry, like I would rather drink 50 other cabs than Silver Oak. Like it's just, right. it's, right. It, that's a, that's such a normie flex because they pay $350 for a bottle of wine. That's 80% of the budget is in the marketing. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I agree. Like you're, your best experience in wine will come from being curious and wanting to try new things and then revisiting the ones you really like. So wait, I have to ask, you guys don't like prisoner wine? Oh, I know. Oh, God, it's not that it's, I don't like, yeah, I don't like Well, it. first, 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 prisoners started okay. Then they got bought out by a much larger company yes. that has just ramped the shit out of it. Uh, the wine is not nearly as good as it used to be. And it's one of those names like, uh, I don't know, like Mondavi. Like, I mean, it's just yeah. like, like, it's just not, it's just a basic bitch wine, like, excuse the French or whatever. But, but and, and I laugh about this with Octopod sometimes, that prisoner wine is in like every restaurant in the, in the country at this yes. point. I don't know how they did it, but they are literally, it's amazing that no matter where you go, you will find prisoner wine on the wine list. But. One of the things you can do is if you're at a restaurant and you're not sure kind of what type of quality price point wine you're dealing with, prisoner wine should be and drinks like a 30 to maybe $40 bottle. So keeping that in mind, look at what they're selling, the prisoner bottle, and that will help you gauge how much you're going to be spending over the top on the rest of the wine. So if you see prisoner wine and you're out to eat at some, you know, fairly nice place and they're trying to sell you that prisoner bottle for $85, you're getting into some nasty stuff. Mm. Okay. Because you really don't want to buy what they're trying to sell you for $30. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. kind of use prisoner and just because it is everywhere. Um, you can use Prisoner as sort of a reference point to the rest of their wine list. Interesting. Arthur, I felt like you were going to say something, but maybe not. I should back up because, again, like, if if you enjoy certain wines, that's great. And you can enjoy them. Like, that's great. Uh, my point with the Prisoner was that uh, it's, a, it's a wine that gained popularity and then just uh, blew up for uh, no good reason apart from marketing and ad spend. Um, and... Uh, then started commanding much higher premiums to what I believe, like, like wine guy said, it's a 30, it drinks like a $30 bottle of wine. I'm just saying, if you like that style of wine, I would explore others because you'll probably find expressions of that style you will enjoy even more. I'll just leave it at that. Makes sense. I honestly asked that question because someone was walking by that is a is a fan of prisoner wine. So I if I was going to drink a red wine, I think I like the blend peppery type of thing. But I mean, this is making me interested to go try things out, even though I don't drink. So I think I'm definitely going to get that book you were talking about, Octo and like, just try things out. That sounds like very a fun thing to do. So my theory is that the type of drunk that you get off of wine is different than the type of drunk you get off of beer or cocktails do you guys agree with that is there some chemical basis for that it's just a better vibe to me well as far as the chemical basis um not really because at the end of the day it's the ethanol that's getting you drunk but i do agree with you i think it's also the uh, i think it's also the uh the uh, the concentration of the alcohol yes um people 
I mean, obviously with a cocktail, you're dealing with a much higher proof in a, you know, a smaller, uh, in a smaller volume amount. So that's going to be coming at you a lot harder. Uh, with wine, it's, you know, normally you're sipping on that. Um, and you're normally having it with food, uh, beers, I, I would say people tend to pound more. So you're, (laughs) oh, did you want us to recommend some, like, uh, I thought that was part of the last question. You want us to recommend some, some producers that we like? Yeah, because I'm about to write down Octopods because I'm actually very curious what he's going to say. Okay, so for Riesling, um, if you really want to explore um, Riesling, uh, Donhoff and also Vili Schaefer are two of my favorite of many uh, producers. I would say look at their Cabinet and Spätlese offerings. The Cabinet will tend to be on the drier side. Um, the Spätlese will have some residual sugar to it, but I, I try and tell people that that residual sugar is balanced with a blast of acidity underneath, almost like you get from a Jolly Rancher. And when you have that with spicy food, like if you're doing Indian or Thai or anything spicy, this is like the magical elixir to go with your meal. Sauvignon Blanc, I I really don't drink much Sauvignon Blanc anymore. Uh, I'm fond of some Chenin Blancs, uh, South Africa, uh, uh, Badenhorst. Uh, is I think pretty well I think pretty well available these days. Badenhorst, you can also look at their red blend as well, but their Chenin Blanc in particular always shows well. I think it's at like maybe a fifteen or eighteen dollar price point, and um, I haven't checked it in a while, but the Badenhorst or Secateurs Badenhorst is the family. Secateurs Chenin Blanc, um, Chardonnay. Uh, I'm a huge white Burgundy fan, but I'm not going to go there. Uh, if you can find the Jordan Chardonnay, uh, Jordan is a solid producer out of um, Alexander Valley. So that's California. Um, they tend to take a French approach to the winemaking, but they're using California fruit. So um, if you want a kind of French style shard, but using California fruit that has a little bit of butter on it i would say the jordan shard you'd be you'd really like um let's see oh pinot noir red burgundy i don't even know where to start on that um i would say if you like pinot noir you should definitely try some uh beaujolais which is close to burgundy but um it uses the gamay grape instead of the pinot noir grape they are very similar uh gamay tends to be i would say a little more fruity um and more approachable. Fru Beaujolais is another huge rabbit hole. You can have fun going down. Start with Fleury. Um, Me Goddard is actually a Korean winemaker who studied in Burgundy, and now she makes incredible Beaujolais. Uh, Me Goddard, M-E-E, and then Goddard. Uh, look her up. If you can find any of her stuff, buy it. It's amazing. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon, I would say Robert Craig out in California, drinks uh, at a higher price point. A punch is at a higher price point than any of the Silver Oak blah, blah, blah that you see in every restaurant. Robert Craig, their Howl Mountain, is one of my favorite Cabernets on the planet. Uh, Robert Craig was one of the first people to plant in Napa, uh, sold his first car to get enough money to buy a plot of land, and is known as the godfather of wine in Napa Valley, but few people know of him, or you know, at least on the mainstream level. Uh, he, is passed, uh, he passed away a few years ago. But uh, the person who took over Elton Sloan is one of the best people I've ever met. Um, he's a good friend, and uh, I am always pleased at their vintage releases. They just have some of the best land. Their winemaker just does a bang-up job. It is um, uh, Mount Veter is also another good one. But if you can find the Howl Mountain, that's my favorite of all their uh, different uh, vineyards of Cabernet. I'll stop there. That was fantastic. I wrote all of those down. I, I actually agree with that last one too. I, I agree with the with, with the Howl Mountain. Top notch. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah. All right, wine guy, you want to give it a go? Yeah. So I'll just throw a couple out there at like different um, you know, price points just so everyone can kind of uh get a feel. I I said it before earlier. I think Alpha Omega Winery, um, they're a California company. They're just I that might actually that might be the best cab I've ever had. Alpha Omega is really really good. Um, Costa Brown, if you like Pinot Noir, it's a little pricier. You're gonna you're gonna pay a hundred bucks. Um, 
But I think Costa Brown just really, really nails um, Pinot Noir. Um, they, it's just, it's really, really good stuff. Um, going down a notch from Costa Brown, Justin Isosceles, they do pretty good stuff. Um, it's not going to be quite as expensive. It could be. Um, but they they make different they do some calves too. They do a few different things. But Justin Isosceles does really, really good work. And then a step below, I think the best bang for your buck that I've ever had in a Pinot Noir is Rose Rock. And uh it, it was it's just I mean that that drank like a hundred dollar Pinot, and I think I got it for like forty five dollars. Um, so if you can find Rose Rock, I don't even know how available it is, but if you can get your hands on some Rose Rock, I just, I couldn't even, I was like, wow, this is like, uh, really good stuff. I love Rose Rock. Um, some other ones kind of in the like 50-ish dollar range that I like, I like are No Roberts. Um, they make a Chardonnay that was uh, again, one of the best Chardonnays I ever had, especially at that price point. Um, top notch, Arnold Roberts. Again, that's a uh, Napa, um, Napa wine, but really, really good. Um, another one that I like, uh, and it's only my friend sells it, so a little bit plug for him here is Vista Alba. They're even cheaper, but they make um, a Malbec. Oof really good vista alba does some good stuff for their price point that's like if you're looking for like a 20 30 bottle i mean they make more expensive stuff but um if you're looking for like a 20 30 bottle and you really don't know what to do vista alba um they have good stuff uh let's see what else do i like oh a finger lakes company i talk a lot about the finger lakes um just because I enjoy it so much. I think there's like an emotional thing for me there too, just because I love, I love going there, but Red Tail Ridge um, makes a rosé that's really, really good. Um, I think a lot of Finger Lakes wines still hasn't reached that consumer mainstream awareness. So you're going to get a lot of good Finger Lakes wine um, way under you know, for much cheaper than the way it drinks. They even have, they're really up up and coming too um, on their Rieslings. Um, they do really good work. Uh, let's see, what else do I like? Oh, um, Fattoria de Barbie. It's like, they this family has, this is a um, Brunello, which is my personal like favorite type of wine. I love Italian wine. Brunellos are my favorite. Um, but Fattoria de Barbie, um, it's like this family, they owned it apparently for like 600, 700 years. They've owned the land. Um, they do a Brunello though. That's just like, oof. That, that's one of the favorite ones I've ever had. Um, Italian wines are tough though. There's just so many of them. You just, you just got to find what you can find. Um, I would say those, I, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to name too many, but I think that kind of covers some of my favorites and where I like to go if I were to like go back to the well. Okay. Awesome. I think that is going to be a juicy part of the podcast for anyone listening. I know I just wrote all of those down. Can I just add one more? Uh, if you're into uh, Chardonnay's check out evening land, uh, it's a project run by Raj Parr. Their Sumum vineyard is like a Close says to a premier crew, white burgundy, like you get that pop popcorn with butter on the nose. It's like intensely awesome. If you can find it or just keep an eye or if you see anything by evening land. Um, yeah, Raj Parr, it's a great project uh, if you like Chardonnays. Their Pinots are great as well, but the Chardonnays are stellar. Okay. And so the plan is for me and everyone listening is I have my list now of quality wines and I go to my big box wine retailer, I try to find these wines. And if I can't find these exact wines, I am going to do what exactly? Like, let's say I want to do a Chardonnay, but I can't find Jordan, Alexander Valley, or Evening Land, or 
the um, Napple Arnold Roberts, but I know I want a buttery Chardonnay. I look for the label that has all of the details, or is there another way that I could try to get a good one? I, if it's a good place, again, if you're looking for butter, just, you know, you want that oak, you want um, Napa, but really don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. Um, I find, and this is why, if you can find instead of a big box place like a total wine and total wine is fine and i've i've met workers there that i've ended up getting into conversations with and they were really good but if you can find an actual single owned wine shop you're going to get so much more out of that experience because anybody that runs that shop is going to know what they're talking about and all you need to do is ask them just you can give them a high. Hey, I really like this buttery Chardonnay. Um, I'm looking to spend $40. They will show you every wine in their store that can match that. Like just mm -hmm. go up to them and ask and they will know their stuff. Okay, perfect. Um, okay. I have one final question that I don't know if this is a myth or not, but I've always wondered. So two buck Chuck, are you guys familiar? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what I've heard is that this man like his wife left him or they got divorced and he didn't want her to have the money and he owned a vineyard. So he started selling his wine for $2 and that's why it's two buck check. Is that true? I didn't know that. No, I have no idea. I didn't know. I do not. I cannot claim to know anything about that story. I'm not sure. <laughs> you guys, how amazing is that? If that is true. That's, yeah, that's great. I, that almost makes me want to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> It's top tier trolling for sure. <laughs> but you are familiar with Tupac Check. Just don't know the myth behind it. Correct. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Um, this has been super fun, super helpful. I'd love to plug you guys. So we'll start with Octo. Octo, where would you like people to go to get more of your stuff after this? Um, you can check out Substack at bowtiedoctopod.substack.com. Or if you want to uh check out my store it's octopodculinary.com there's knives and coffee and such and there will be some new launches coming up very very soon for new products so stay tuned potentially season seasons and spice mixes yes exactly i've got a whole line i've been blending and working on i'm excited <laughs> uh, and then wine guy where should people look to to find more of your stuff yeah i mean right now you can just find me on twitter um bowtied wine guy um, I like I told I think I told you before I'm working on a uh little beginner downloadable guide, so be on the lookout for that. That'll be coming out soon. I'm almost done with it. Oh, sweet! Can't wait. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Learned a lot. No longer gonna drink the Franzia. So appreciate <laughs> your time. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.